everyone, and welcome to History Speaks, a series of the Maidan podcast that is curated by Sadia Yaqub and focuses on how the Islamic historical tradition speaks to contemporary concerns. My name is Tazine Ali, and I am your host for today. In this episode, I sit down with Arya Nakisa, a scholar of law and religion and Muslim societies at Washington University in St. Louis, to discuss his book, The Anthropology of Islamic Law, Education, Ethics, and Legal Interpretation at Egypt's Al-Azhar. The book explores how the rules of the Sharia are transmitted over time. It attends to this subject through the lens of Islamic jurisprudence and traditional Islamic education, weaving in analysis of Islamic legal texts with an ethnography of higher religious education in Cairo. Welcome, Arya, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's such an honor to have you here. Well, it's an honor to be here. It's always very exciting to have the opportunity to share your work with a broader audience, and I very much appreciate uh, your help in doing so. To start us off, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your background. So for our listeners, Ari and I are actually colleagues at Washington University in St. Louis, though we teach in different departments. So obviously I can rattle off your professional appointments and your training. Um, I know you teach in the departments of Jewish, Islamic, Middle Eastern Studies, and Anthropology, but I'd love to hear you share with our listeners a little bit of your own background and walk us through the journey of how you came to be an anthropologist, as well as a legal expert in religion and Muslim societies, who also happens to have a law degree as well. So I've always been very interested in religion and morality. They're very exciting topics, I think, for a lot of people. They're never boring. They cause a lot of controversy. Uh, I come from a multi-religious household on my mom's side. They are kind of American Catholics. Um, on my dad's side, he's an immigrant from Iran, so kind of a Muslim background from Iran. And yeah, I was interested in understanding these different forms of life, these different uh, traditions that have you know, these religious and moral aspects to them. In fact, uh, when I, in my earliest childhood, the religious tra traditions that I was most interested in were actually ancient Egyptian religion and ancient Greek religion. So I used to read all of these books about the ancient Egyptian myths. Greek mythology as well. And then by the time I got to high school, my favorite classes were those on politics. And we also had like a history of religions class that I really liked. We we used this book by Houston Smith called The World's Religions that I really mm -hmm. loved. I kind of started, uh, got a little bit of a more background information on each of the religious traditions. But by the time I was close to the end of high school, I had resolved uh, resolved on this desire to learn more about the Islamic tradition. I was especially interested in Islamic law as opposed to, let's say, Islamic mysticism or Islamic theology, Islamic art. Uh, Islamic tradition is obviously a very rich tradition, but I was specifically interested in law because that uh, enabled me to combine my interest in religion with uh, legal systems. And I was especially interested in the comparative question, like why are there certain similarities and differences between Islamic law and contemporary Western norms? like contemporary Western human uh, rights norms. Uh, so for that reason, I went to college. I took a lot of classes. One of my majors was in comparative religion, but I also took uh, a lot of classes which dealt kind of in the anthropology of different moral systems across the world. And I also took a lot of classes on the, on the intellectual and cultural history of the West. And then I applied to graduate school. I applied for a law degree where I thought, you know, I'm not going to be a tax lawyer. What I'm going to do is at this law school, I'm going to study Western law and Islamic law and learn how to compare them. Uh, and then I also want to be an anthropologist so I can 
I can have the theory. I can also have the opportunity to visit some of these places uh, that I'm interested in, like maybe Al-Azhar in Egypt, and kind of learn uh, directly, learn directly about these uh, tradition, about this tradition. That's a very unique scholarly profile that you have, and it's always interesting to me to hear how folks with multiple types of training came to pursue their particular scholarly trajectories. So it's interesting also to hear how early these interests started for you. So the History Speaks podcast is invested in understanding the Islamic intellectual tradition within its own context, as well as within the contemporary moment. And as I read your book, The Anthropology of Islamic Law, I read it as very invested in a very similar objective because of the way that you analyze selections of pre-modern and modern legal texts to explore the development of Islamic legal doctrine through the lens of religious education and curriculum reform at Al-Azhar. So I wondered if you could share with us your aims in writing this book and highlight for our listeners why in particular Al-Azhar and Egypt are important sites for exploring Islamic legal doctrine. So I think a lot of people today uh, would say, I mean, the the conventional view is that Al-Azhar, at least today, is the most important center of religious scholarship in the Muslim world. So of religious scholarship and learning. It probably has been that way for couple of centuries, although even before then, from the time Al-Azhar was founded in the 10th century. So, but, but uh, in, if we talk about the distant past of Al-Azhar, then it's one important center of Islamic scholarship and learning uh, used to train elite scholars. It's one among others. Uh, but certainly by the time we get to the modern period, it is widely considered to be kind of the preeminent center. So one reason to pay attention to Al-Azhar is just that, that it has this enormous influence on defining Islam, especially in its more orthodox uh, and authoritative uh, forms. So one reason why, if you're interested in Islamic legal history, why you'd be interested in studying Al-Azhar is because it has a good reputation. Uh, It has this kind of unique reputation. To this day, it's like a magnet. It attracts scholars from across the world, uh, from West Africa, from Indonesia, uh, from Central Asia. And many of them, they bring with them these rich local uh, traditions of learning. And some of them are very modernist in orientation. Uh, Some of them are also very traditionalist in orientation. So you'll find it a place like Al-Azhar. So uh, uh, Al-Azhar, over the course of since the late 19th century has undergone a series of reform. And for that reason, actually the dominant methods of teaching and learning are not super traditionalist in character. Uh, They've really been transformed by modernity. But but at a place like Al-Azhar, it's a big enough organization that it attracts enough people such that regardless of what your interests are. So if you're interested in in, in more modernized ways of Islamic teaching and learning and scholarship, that's there for you. But also if you're interested in more traditional methods, there are top scholars from across the world who are teaching using those methods, often on the margins, uh, sometimes not too marginal, uh, but you you, you have a good variety. So it was a good place for me to learn about modern Islamic scholarship, but then also the remnants of some of these older traditions that you only read about otherwise. They're kind of still uh, live traditions at a place like Al-Azhar. 
Another reason why Al-Azhar is uh, significant for people interested in the past and interested in the present and future of the kind of orthodox Islamic traditions is that Al-Azhar has been at the center of modern efforts to transform the Islamic tradition, not only within an Egyptian context, but from basically the late uh, 18th century to the mid 20th century, large areas of the Muslim world were under colonial control. The most important of these colonial empires was the British Empire. And one of the things that the British tried to do was foster a certain types of Islamic reform, a modernization of the Islamic religion through these different universities, through different educational institutions. So a famous example in late 19th century would be like Mohammedan Anglo Oriental College. They established Gordon College in Sudan. They established Katsina College in Nigeria, but kind of some of their most important, arguably their most important reform efforts happen in Egypt, where they reform Al-Azhar and they reform Al-Azhar. So you have kind of like your Lord Cromer and he's working hand in hand with a figure named Muhammad Abdu. And Muhammad Abdu becomes seen uh, or is widely recognized as the father of kind of the modern day Al-Azhar University and the preeminent kind of the exemplar of reformist Islamic currents to this day. It's really interesting to think about sort of the the global currents of Al-Azhar that's affecting not just what's happening in Egypt, but really globally and defining sort of these global shifts in authority and also education around the world. I wondered if we could zoom out a little bit and talk a little bit about some of your aims in writing the book and sort of who you were writing it for and what are sort of the primary goals that you were trying to achieve. In this book, I try and engage with two primary approaches to Islamic studies. Uh, so one of these approaches is a kind of historical, it's a particular type of historical approach often associated with the uh, discipline of Orientalism. Uh, so that involves yeah, a history of Islamic societies, which is very much attentive to textual traditions, mastering various languages, especially the Arabic language and Arabic or Persian uh, textual traditions and really getting to understand the doctrine. Um, so getting to understand, uh, for instance, Islamic doctrine in the field of law. So what are the exact rules, rulings of Islamic law? How did they change over time? What is the theory of interpretation that guides uh, legal reasoning? Uh, also, orient uh, kind of this historical approach to Islamic tradition has paid a lot of attention to legal manuals and the history of legal institutions like Al-Azhar. So what exactly did Al-Azhar look like in the medieval period and how is that reflected in teaching manuals from that era? So obviously that approach is very rich. It has some good aspects to it. It also, like any approach, it has some weaknesses. So sometimes it doesn't really pay attention to the kind of information that you can only get on the ground. So information which isn't recorded in texts. So if you were interested in talking about Al-Azhar, but you wanted to talk about the institutional structure, the social backgrounds of students, their career trajectories, the relationship of Al-Azhar with different media or security or governmental agencies. Those are things that aren't necessarily recorded in text. So that's kind of one shortcoming. 
of this more Orientalist uh, historicist approach. Another area where there could where there's which, which isn't necessarily a strength is a lot of times I don't want to generalize but a lot of times there is a reluctance to deal with broader theoretical questions and uh, anthropology uh, has a different set of kind of uh, strengths and areas uh, which are not quite as strong so one really strong area of anthropology is kind of long-term ethnographic research that you can actually mm-hmm. go inside institutions get information like how many students there are how many students are there in any class how long do these classes last when do the classes meet what do students do outside of the class how do students dress how do students interact with one another so, so ethnography is one great uh, merit of anthropology and during this book i kind of spent over two years inside al-azhar which isn't as easy as one might imagine because you need a lot of security clearances Mm -hmm. so you can't just say okay it's not like walking onto campus let's say wash you and just sitting in and auditing some courses although there's red tape involved there as well but it is kind of fenced off and it's like a security issue you have to show some kind of id to get in and that getting that kind of permission isn't necessarily an easy thing. So I got permission to basically attend classes and hang out at Al-Azhar for a couple of years. There are also a number of uh, study circles surrounding Al-Azhar Mosque that are kind of traditionalist in character. I spent some time there as well. And then there's also an institution called Darul Ulum, which is very important in modern Egyptian religious history, which is related to Al-Azhar. And I got a permit to kind of observe their classes as well and compare them with what was going on at Al-Azhar. So that was some ethnographically important material. And then there was also a theoretical question that I was interested in addressing in the book. And that theoretical question has been given a lot more attention in anthropology than at least kind of orient traditional orientalist Islamicist history. So it's a basic question about what are we interested in doing when we're doing Islamic studies. And there are a couple of different approaches. So one uh, approach that I talk about, it's often, often goes under the heading of hermeneutic, a hermeneutic approach. And what you're interested in a, in a hermeneutic approach is interested in basically determining someone's psychology, determining their inner mental states. So what do Muslims believe? What do they desire? What kind of emotions do they have in reaction to particular events? How is that reflected in their bodily behavior? How is that also reflected in the texts that they write? So it's very much a question of looking at things like statements and actions to understand the psychology of a particular group because ultimately their psychology is invisible you can't get direct access to it and then kind of a practice theory approaches okay well we're not so interested in getting inside of people's heads uh what we're interested in is thinking about not how someone's statements or actions might give us evidence that we can use to discern their hidden inner mental states, but rather how particular Mm. forms of action can change, can alter your psychology, especially when these forms of action are imposed by social institutions, powerful social institutions like Islamic schools or Islamic courts or Islamic governments or simply families or uh, let's say a Sufi disciple or parent-teacher or a parent-child relationship, how might, how might, for instance, certain practices, so for instance, it may be if you want to change someone's desires such that they like to eat vegetables, you can 
require that they eat vegetables since the time that they're a child, and that can change their psychological states. Maybe if you want to deepen their belief in God, you can get them to pray, and that will change their psychological states. So when we're examining Muslim societies in the more hermeneutic approach, the question is basically, how can we look at the actions of these Muslim peoples at places like Al-Azhar and understand what's going on inside of their head? The practice theory approach is, how do their actions affect their psychology? So how are there these actions uh, guided by powerful institutions in such a way as to affect their psychology, their inner states? Often this, this is referred to as habitus or akhlaq. So yeah, I kind of looked at things from both of those approaches. So to sum up, I was interested in addressing kind of historian uh, audience that is composed of people who've been influenced by Orientalist traditions. I was also interested in uh, addressing an anthropological audience uh, as well, of people who have an interest in Muslim societies, but more broadly, the study of law and morality uh, and religion in different cultural and social contexts. I want to return back to the anthropological aspects of the book, specifically about your fieldwork. And I wondered if you could share some reflections. You started talking about this already in terms of just gaining access to the space at Al-Azhar and even Dar al-Ulum. I wondered if you could share some reflections on your experiences doing fieldwork in Cairo in general, specifically thinking about, you know, what were your interlocutors' perceptions of you and what they what did they think you were doing there? Uh, I mean, I tried to explain to them what I was doing. When, so I said, you know, what I'm doing is I'm trying to write a book on Al-Azhar and how it fits into this broader Islamic tradition. Did they believe that? Uh, probably some did more than others. One thing that foreign researchers face for reason, for good reason, uh, is that they're often suspected of one of two things. So one is they are suspected of being affiliated with foreign intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. Another is they are suspected of having the aim of somehow portraying the Islamic tradition in, in a negative light for the sake of advancing some kind of a political or human rights or media related project. And I can't say that they're wrong. They're actually a lot of people. They're very right uh, to be suspicious right. about those kind of people. So uh, yeah, of uh, one of the things that I tried to do was explain that, you know, no, that's not really what I'm doing. Although even if I was doing that, that's the exact kind of thing that I would say. So I get, I, I got a sense that people were much more reluctant to open up to me upon meeting me for the first time. However, uh, in other cases, just spending time with people over, you know, a six month long period, one year long period, it allows you to build up a certain measure of trust. And that enables you to kind of enter into people's lives uh, a little bit more. So just by getting these, just by getting the permits to go to the universities, I thought, okay, well, at minimum, what I have at this, at minimum, I can go to the administration, I can ask about the curriculum, like how the curriculum works every year, like which classes are taught for the different degrees, how long the degrees take, how many students are in the classes, how many students are at the universities. I can describe the buildings, like how they're structured, what kind of facilities and rooms and services do they have or that they don't have? The trickier part, though, is kind of getting people to trust you enough to say, okay, well, after class is over, you can spend time at our homes 
and we'll invite you to our religious events and we'll introduce you to our families. That's what takes a little bit more trust. Although I can say that I had this working in my, uh, in my favor, Egyptians are very hospitable people, very kind-hearted people. So it wasn't as hard. So even though I had to deal with certain suspicions, there weren't necessarily the same type of barriers that there might be in other uh, places. So one of the things that I came to learn is that for at least certain types of scholars, tradi- traditionalist scholars, they came they had this approach uh, to religious knowledge that was unfamiliar to me. So one of the reasons why I wanted these permits, I thought, okay, where all the action is happening, if I want to understand Islamic learning, it's about getting into these classrooms and kind of learning, making notes about what the lectures are like and what the assignments are like and what exact books are taught. That's important. But I came to recognize that at least among the more traditional minded scholars, they had this idea that learning involved some kind, basically initiating yourself into a sunnah or sharia oriented form of life uh, that was kind of like all encompassing thing, not just the material that you're learning in a classroom, but the clothes you wear, uh, your form of worship, who you're spending your time with, what you're eating, uh, your uh, relations with the other gender, kind of like all of these very much day-to-day practices. And they had this idea that the way you internalize, the way that you learn to appropriately practice a sunnah-guided Islamic lifestyle, and the way that you have it affect your norms and your character and your psychology is to do it over a long period of time. So basically, you have to do two things. You have to spend a lot of time with other people who are committed to this form of life, like other students. And you should also have the guidance of some kind of religious scholars. You can do, ideally, you could do both. Uh, Ideally, you should do both. But at minimum, you should spend your time with all these other uh, pious Muslims. And this is talked about in kind of pre-modern Islamic legal texts. They refer to it as suhba or companionship, and they believe that it is modeled on the way that the Prophet Muhammad taught the earliest Muslims. So the Prophet Muhammad didn't have like a school or a university like Al-Azhar. He didn't have a written curriculum. Rather, the way that people learned is they just spent time with him over his two decades or so long mission, sharing in his travels, in his expeditions, eating with him, uh, praying with him in the mosque, and what these scholars, traditionalist scholars affiliated with Al-Azhar, they try and do uh, the same thing. So I was thinking, you know, look, I'm wasting a lot of my time just, you know, eating with people and running errands and traveling around with him from city uh, to city. Uh, But then later on, I came to recognize that no, um, this is actually a very important aspect of uh, traditional uh, learning and is ideally supposed to have an, a profound uh, psychological or uh, pro- I would say so I would describe it as a psychological transformation, but they would say transformation in your ethics or character, your akhlaq, um, your nafs. They would they basically have this notion that if you live like the prophet externally, it will affect your mind such that you start thinking like the prophet. You have the same kind of character traits. You have the same kind of beliefs. You have the same kind of norms. You have the same kind of emotional reactions in terms of shyness or disgust or love. Uh, And that has a really big impact 
on how you under not only how you practice the Islamic tradition, but also how you understand Islamic texts and the Islamic right. tradition. So it's important not only. So, yeah, on the one hand, it's important. It is a religiously meritorious to transform yourself so you don't just resemble the prophet and follow the prophet externally, but also that your heart is modeled on his heart. Uh, but it's also important for actually learning and interpreting and appropriate under understanding the Islamic religious texts, like the Quran, for instance. I'm glad you bring this up in terms of thinking about teaching and spending time with others and teachers as sort of a way to transfer these inward dispositions. I was really struck by, so I'm glad you, you brought up this pedagogy of companionship. I was really interested in the way that you talk about it in the book. And so you've talked a little bit about how it works in terms of spending time with teachers, spending time with others, emulating particular behaviors, and thinking about sort of religious scholars and teachers as proxies for the Prophet Muhammad, who Muslims are supposed to emulate. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit, I mean, it's interesting that this is a, um, a traditional method of Islamic learning that has persisted into the contemporary period. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how that practice has transformed over time. You talked earlier about reform and modernization and so how a lot of traditional methods are sort of marginalized or sidelined even at places like Al-Azhar. And I, I wondered how that specific practice of a pedagogy of companionship has transformed, especially with respect to how it might not necessarily be legible to contemporary actors. And, and you mentioned this to yourself, right? There's this wonderfully rich anecdote, which you just alluded to, where you describe your own brief foray into companionship with a religious scholar, and you later sort of reflect with this tinge of regret that you felt like it was wasting time and not recognizing it as significant maybe in the moment. And so I wonder if you could reflect a little more on the ways that it might not necessarily be legible to contemporary actors, and it might even be read as inefficient or nepotistic even. So contemporary education tends to focus on, at least insofar as, well, insofar as it transmits knowledge generally, but specifically knowledge of religious and cultural traditions, the idea is that you go into a classroom, you're assigned readings of a particular text, and then you learn uh, to analyze that text. There's no notion that your ethics or your own psychology are transformed in the process. And certainly Islamic education in the modern period had there has been a trend to reform things in that uh, direction. But what the tra traditional Islamic scholarship is based on this assumption that the type of understanding that a person has is partially based on what can be gained from the text, the text itself, but it also requires a particular type of reader. So different types of readers are going to read a text like the Quran or the Hadith in a different way, in different ways. They're going to come to very different understandings of Islamic uh, legal rules, for instance, which is going to reflect their underlying character, their underlying psychology. Uh, so in the pre-modern period, there was this notion that we are going to organize education in such a way that we transmit a text so we transmit the quran or the hadith or certain works of fiqh but we also transmit set of ethics or a psychology 
or a way of viewing the world. And when we transmit both of those things together, we're able to transmit an appropriate understanding of the Islamic tradition. Because if you just were to transmit the texts alone, and you were to transmit these texts, then the readings that you're going to get of those texts are just going to be based on whatever that person's psychology happens to be. So you give, uh, imagine you give a text like the Quran, or you give a text like uh, like a fic text, for instance, and you give it to a hundred different people. And these people all come from different cultural backgrounds. They all come from, they all have different sets of uh, norms or uh, they all have different sets of emotional sensibilities. Uh, they're going to come up with very different interpretations of those texts. Uh, but the idea in traditional Islamic education is that you give someone the text, but you also have to shape their minds, or they would say their heart, they're called, shape their minds in such a way that they can approach that text in this in the way that the prophet and his companions and the muslims would have approached that text and in fact if you just give people the text alone it's going to produce or it was believed in the pre-modern people and the pre-modern period uh, to be very conducive to misunderstandings, even heretical misunderstandings, uh, because uh, when that text starts interacting with a new type of psychology, it's going to give emergence, it's going to produce new readings that have no precedent in the Islamic tradition. So in the medieval period, it was seen as very much stigmatized. It was believed that you couldn't become a real scholar unless you had participated in a very specific type of education, which involved a teacher giving you a text, but also you had to participate in a type of suhba, a type of companionship, and submit yourself in a disciplehood relationship to a scholar. And that was designed to, over a long period of time, decades, to gradually refine your character. And if your character and your heart and your psychology uh, wasn't refined, in that way, then you are seen as not competent to be a scholar. Now, the way that people teach Islamic studies in a Western classroom, once again, it's focused on teaching people texts, but not necessarily transforming their psychology, transforming uh, their character, precisely because uh, the, ed what education involves is, let's say, meeting in a classroom for three hours per week and then reading texts outside of class. But there's no notion that you have to change your entire form of life, that you have to change how you eat, how you dress, how you pray, how you interact with the other gender, what kind of economic transactions you engage in or don't engage in. And there's no like accountability system. You don't, you're not, your behavior isn't monitored by a scholar. Right. Nor are you joining a specific community that you're going to be constantly interacting with outside of classroom hours. Now, this is obviously easy to perceive if we talk about a modern Western university, but ultimately since the late, not basically between the late 19th century and the mid 20th century, Al-Azhar's mainstream education is much more moved in that type of model. So it is primarily geared towards classroom instruction. If you want to initiate yourself into a form of life, become a disciple of a sheikh, that's optional. And certain traditional-minded scholars will do this, but this is no longer required. You know, I think a lot about the different approaches to reading sacred texts and this idea of deriving ethical and legal norms from those different kinds of readings. So 
So in my own work on how contemporary American Muslims and also Muslims around the world, generally who are invested in sort of gender egalitarian readings of the Islamic textual traditions, I explore what other scholars like Sadia Sheikh, for example, have named a tafsir of praxis, which is an exegetical method that's rooted in women's experiences. And I think in, in some ways it's tempting to categorize these kinds of feminist modes of exegesis as, as distinctly modern or, or even new. But I'm really struck by, you know, your explanation just now and the way that your book addresses this way that in the pre-modern Islamic tradition, texts were, as you just explained, never sort of read plainly, as it were, um, but really read and interpreted through ethics, through the emotions and the particular ethics of specific teachers as, as a part of discipleship, as a part of companionship. And I wondered if you could talk some more about just different methods of reading and learning texts in these traditional modes of learning, and then really how the role of print and the wide-scale accessibility of religious texts for the education of lay Muslims really transformed these methods of reading and of you know traditional religious education more generally. Yeah, I mean, you're very right in saying that a lot of theoretical or scholarly work on interpretation, which emphasizes the fact that uh, reading is, in a sense, perspectival, that people are always going to consciously or unconsciously bring their experiences, bring their upbringing to the reading of a text. And so sometimes this is seen as a type of modernist or postmodernist uh, development. However, there are certain, there are certainly precursors in the pre-modern uh, Islamic tradition and probably, arguably, also uh, other traditions like a Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, which also uh, require that uh, to become a religious authority, you have to have kind of a period of discipleship through an unbroken kind of chain of transmission. I think maybe one of the differences is, is that in the modern period when people are talking about how the character or the psychology of the interpreter shapes how he or she interprets a text. This is often put forth to support the idea that, okay, since different psychologies produce different readings of the text and people have different psychologies, that means that there are going to be different valid readings of the texts. That whether it's right or wrong is not quite the view that we find among pre-modern Muslim thinkers. Because the pre-modern Muslim thinkers would say, oh yeah, your character, your psychology, what's in your qalb, what's in your heart, what's in your mind, that very much affects how you interpret the text. But that doesn't mean that every interpretation is equally valid. Rather, there is one particular type of psychology or character or qalb that you're supposed to have. And you will only be able to, to properly understand this text if you acquire this, if you acquire this very specific psychology. And in fact, the educational system and its practices uh, are geared towards requiring uh, that you undergo this psychological uh, transformation. What, what might be some examples of how that psychological transformation might work out? So, for instance, you can have emotional reactions about being shy, for instance, which are very much influenced by culture, whether it's for men or women. So let's say if you're a man, you know, is it permissible if you're a man to like wear very tight jeans that, you know, kind of show, show the form of, mm -hmm. your, uh, of your body, of your legs and other areas uh, below your abdomen? 
These aren't the type of things that you will have specific legal rules on in many cases. But what people will say when you have Quranic texts which talk about the importance of shyness and in the importance of modesty, people interpret those in light of in light of an understanding of what should cause you to feel shy and what should not cause you to feel shy. And that is largely dependent on their upbringing. So if you have grown up in an environment where all the men are wearing skinny jeans, you're probably going to feel less shy about wearing those type of jeans. But if you're in the type of environment where everyone's been wearing kind of this a very loose flowing jalabia, then right. uh, you probably would be uh, more sensitive. Another example might be to what extent are you obliged to uh, serve your family? So the Quran talks a lot about family bonds, for instance. But, you know, general notions of bir al-walidain, like taking care of your parents or family bonds, they can be interpreted in a, in a variety of ways. And individuals might come to different understandings about how they should balance their familial obligations against their individual freedom. And where exactly you strike that balance is very important for how we interpret the Sharia, but is going to be that people are going to strike that balance in different ways depending on their upbringing. So, for instance, if you've been brought up in an extended household where from the time you are a child, you are doing things like working, helping your parents clean the house, making sacrifices for your brothers and sisters, you might say, well, even if I'm older, I have this obligation to share my wealth with my parents, to take them into my household, take my grandparents into my household, to care for them, sacrifice job opportunities to live with them. All of this is required by the Sharia. But if you live in a nuclear family or in a familial relationship where there aren't those kind of expectations and there aren't those kind of practices, you're probably going to have a very different understanding of what the Sharia requires with respect to family bonds. So these are ways in which practices, uh, overall form of life, very much how affects how we look at the different uh, Sharia rules. Now, one of the things that print does is in the past, it was very hard to get access to texts because without print, print makes texts much cheaper. Right. Uh, so in the past, if you wanted to get access to a text, the way that Muslim students would usually get access to the text is they would sit in a study circle and a sheikh or a religious scholar would read out the text and then they would copy out this text. And the basic understanding was that you could only acquire the actual text itself and an appropriate understanding of the text if you sat with a religious scholar and then got the religious scholar to sign off on it. So he would sign off that you had knowledge of a particular text by issuing a certificate known as an ijazah. Uh, so basically, oh, you have this text and you have appropriate knowledge of this text. Print changes that because people are no longer dependent upon scholars to get texts. So you no longer have to submit to a scholar because that scholar might say, you're only allowed to come to my study circles and take texts with me or listen to my commentary. You're not going to get any jazza from me unless you basically submit to this particular regimen of ethical discipline and Sharia guided lifestyle for one or two decades for, or at least for some extended period of time. Right now you can get texts without doing that. Uh, so in the past, since you could only get a text from a scholar, if you underwent this process of 
a psychological transformation. This ensured that the text, that when someone got the text, they got the Sharia-shaped psychology that caused them to interpret the text in a particular way. With mass print, you have anyone, anyone with $5 or an internet connection can now get access to these texts. And these texts are now being subjected to all different types of unprecedented readings, which reflect the diversity and the evolving uh, psychology of populations, Muslim populations across the globe. I really appreciate how you laid that out in terms of reflecting contextually specific sensibilities. But also, it seems like in a way, the introduction of of mass print and wide scale accessibility of texts enables one to sort of divorce the, the ethical practice from knowledge. And so there are some really thought provoking sections throughout the book where you're contrasting methods of traditional Islamic education to the contemporary Western university setting, or even the secular university setting in Cairo. And so here, I'd I'd like to ask you to talk a little more about that relationship between knowledge and ethics in traditional settings, and specifically in your view, if you see any parallels in the American Academy, or, you know, in other words, you know, what is the relationship between knowledge and ethics, as you've sort of explained, in traditional Islamic education, versus in secular settings like Cairo University, or even at Tharlulum, or even at WashU, where, where we are? So it's, a, it's an interesting question, because in one sense, I would say that universities, and maybe I would have said this a little bit more at the time I was conducting this research, that the ethical lifestyle component of the university is very different from what is being taught. So that whether you're teaching a class on Islamic law or you're teaching a class on American history or mathematics or computer science or whatever, uh, the idea is that, look, students come to the classroom, they listen to the instructor. None of them are going to become this instructor's disciples and like follow him around and intermarry into his family. That would be seen as <laughs> that would be seen as legally problematic. And uh, what they're, they're a lot of their learning is just they're going to take texts home with them. So due to print and now due to the internet and like PDF files, they're just going to like read stuff at home, do some exercises at home. But ultimately, in order to get a degree from a Western university, you don't have to undergo a particular psychological transformation. That is the view that I really have in the text because what my basically my argument is that. Al-Azhar between the late 19th century and the mid-20th century, but continuing on in this direction, becomes more and more of an impersonal bureaucratic institution where people don't engage in these personalistic long-term relationships with scholars and aren't required to undergo any psychological transformation. They're just simply asked to master a particular set of materials and at the graduate level to generate some new type of knowledge. So like some new type, some masters or some PhD where they talk about a subject where they say, oh, I'm the first person to do a work on, let's say, Atufi's legal corpus, or I'm the first person to go ahead and talk about how Arazi explores the theme of you know, God's creation of the world. And may- maybe no one wrote a systematic dissertation on that before. That's very different because obviously in the or in a pre in the pre-modern Islamic period, the aim of education, especially at the highest levels, is not 
primarily to prepare you to write new works of research. You can become in the traditional Islamic system in order to be a, a good teacher, like a high, high level religious authority. This means that you have a certain character, so you can act as an exemplar for other students, that you're good at guiding them, and also that you faithfully preserved a tradition from the past. But when we talk about a Western university, the idea is that what defines you as your scholar is primarily your capacity to produce research on new topics and to produce new opinions that have never existed before. So in a pre-modern Islamic context, they actually had, if anything, kind of an overall negative view of unprecedented opinions on the Sharia or unprecedented opinions in Islamic theology. So uh, certain exceptions aside, they stigmatized these. They said, this is a bid'ah, this is an innovation, this isn't something that we want you to produce. But in the contemporary Al-Azhar University, not only do you see to a much larger extent, kind of a de-emphasis on a personal psychological transformation. But uh, education at the highest levels becomes not enabling someone to faithfully transmit a tradition, enabling someone to act as a model that can be emulated by students, but rather the capacity to produce kind of novel research, innovative research, which is unprecedented. Those are things that I see as entering Western Islamic education and Azharite education from the West. So kind of a restructuring of Al-Azhar education along Western lines. At the same time, I think that one can say that at Western universities, yes, there isn't the same explicit emphasis on adopting a particular form of life and psychological transformation. Yes, there's still this explicit emphasis on producing new types of research rather than just becoming an exemplar which can transmit a, a specific tradition. One could argue that more and more people are at Western universities, people have become conscious of the Western university Perhaps it's become more urgent in recent decades, and maybe even the last decade, maybe even more so the last five years. But the idea is that, in fact, the university should model a personal transformation in practice and kind of a psychological transformation in terms of uh, gender and sexual relations, in terms of showing respect uh, to people of different religious or racial backgrounds, in terms of social structure. So like how, what types of hierarchies are allowed to exist or not allowed to exist, in terms of even, you know, everyday practices with respect to, let's say, health. I think perhaps in recent years, universities have more emphatically embraced that role of kind of shaping students in a particular way. Uh, and in that sense, we can see some parallels with the traditional Islamic education. That's really helpful to kind of think about where the dis differences between sort of traditional Islamic education and the Western university are perhaps the most pronounced are, as you mentioned, those objectives of to produce new knowledge in the Western setting. But uh, as you were just alluding to, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that our, our teaching in the Secular American Academy does or, or should come from a moral place, certainly not to inculcate specific religious or, or political values, but to inculcate a sense of 
civic responsibility. And I think that's implicit in so many ways in general, but maybe more so in the in the humanities. And also if we think about sort of universities as providing social capital, it indicates the members of a particular university have some kind of moral standing as, you know, as a part of that community. So it's interesting to to think about that and, and to use your book that traces this history of how religious education has, has transformed as a way to reflect on our own sort of positionality situated within in the secular West, uh, American Academy. I wanted to end our conversation by returning to one of the primary aims of the History Speaks series, which is to think about how the Islamic past speaks to contemporary concerns. And with that in mind, I wondered if you could reflect on how the pre-modern Islamic legal tradition and its modern reform, as we've been talking about, speaks to contemporary Egyptian politics and society and wider Muslim societies today. Adel Azhar you see certain developments which really characterize uh, the entire Muslim world and which reflect social, political, and technological changes that you find across the globe in Muslim and non-Muslim societies. So I think one of the things that you see, especially over the past 20 years, is this idea that in the future, religious knowledge and political discourse are going to be more and more influenced by the internet and social media. So there have been changes that are as hard to kind of, you know, open up institutes that are engaging with the internet and social media. And in this sense, we can talk about kind of a third chapter in the evolution of the transmission of Islamic knowledge and its effects on Islamic authority. So you can say, okay, well, in the medieval period, We were in a system where the way that people would transmit knowledge is they would kind of write out these texts in the context of study circles while they were engaged in kind of building and sustaining a personal bond with a scholar and undergoing a particular psychological transformation. And then after that, you get to the print the era of print, which starts, you know, and maybe impacting Europe, 15th and 16th century, but which really starts impacting the Muslim world in the 19th century. So then you get this impact of print, uh, where all of a sudden these religious texts become more accessible to populations as a whole, even people who aren't undergoing these companionship relations. And also, print becomes uh, more and more central to, or proportionally becomes more and more central to education, even kind of institutional education. So at Al-Azhar in the past, yeah, maybe understanding a text or studying a text was a component of the teaching, but the personal relations were an even bigger component now at a place like Al-Azhar. So they basically teach the text in class and they give the students printed texts that they go home and they read after class. So it's kind of a more text-dominated thing. Now you have the internet changing things even more. So right now, uh, the internet enables more and more information access. So in the past, at least things like even in the era of print, you still have some kind of control exercised by universities over people reading printed texts in the sense of courses. 
And you also have newspapers exercising some kind of control over which ideas are going to be expressed or which ideas aren't going to be expressed. Whereas if you talk about the internet and social media, all of a sudden there are courses online. You have people more and more willing to get their education online at informally or somewhat more formally through Coursera uh, than at a university. Well, you no longer have giant media operations like newspapers exercising the same kind of censorship over content. So now you can have kind of an individual using YouTube or Facebook to build up an enormous audience, which outstrips that of a traditional Islamic scholar, even an entire university or media operation. So you have Muslim societies across the world grappling with these changes, because when you open things up, this is going to lead to a situation where some people read these Islamic texts, interact with the Islamic tradition, and they develop views which are similar to those endorsed by hegemonic power structures, and which are kind of li liberal in character at this moment in history. But you're also going to have many people developing alternative views, which very much critique the types of views which are endorsed by powerful institutions across the world. And that's going to lead to all kinds of conflict and social instability. So what you see at places like Al-Azhar and other places in the Muslim world is you increasingly see government ministries cooperating with religious scholars, cooperating with human rights NGOs, and cooperating with social media companies to shape the Islamic legal tradition. So that involves, for instance, Al-Azhar's content is increasingly being broadcast over the internet. So they'll have kind of videotapes of classes at Al-Azhar University now made available over the internet. They'll have more Al-Azhar websites. Uh, and also Al-Azhar and people from Al-Azhar will go ahead and cooperate with the security agencies to go ahead and monitor and take down problematic Islamic content. Uh, mm -hmm. So for instance, the social media companies are now exerting an enormous role in the reform of Islam, going hand in hand, working hand in hand with government agencies, working hand in hand with human rights NGOs. Uh, so for instance, they will do things like say, okay, and your YouTube recommendations which Islamic videos are being recommended right. to you and which aren't. So you want to boost certain views and you want to either outright ban or at least limit the impact of other views. And that's also like affecting your searches. So for instance, if you do like a Google search for let's say jihad or women's rights, some other sensitive issue, the search results you're getting are under control. So you see this across Muslim societies, including Egypt, including Indonesia, including kind of the American uh, Muslim uh, community, and institutions of Islamic learning like Al-Azhar are, are participating in this. Those are some connections one could draw. Thank you so much, Arya, for this rich and informative discussion on your book, The Anthropology of Islamic Law, Education, Ethics, and Legal Interpretation at Egypt's Al-Azhar, which we will link to in the show notes. And of course, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of History Speaks, part of the Maidan podcast, generously funded by the Henry Luce Foundation. Mm -hmm.